Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're turning to Psalm 3. Listen to God's word as we read Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. This psalm is the first psalm in the Psalter after the two-part introduction to the psalms in Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1 is about the Word of God, and Psalm 2 is about the Messiah of God. And then we have, beginning with Psalm 3, five psalms that speak a lot about trouble. They're called Psalms of Lament. We might say the Psalter begins with trouble and lament and ends in praise because the final five psalms all begin and end with the word and the call, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We might say that this structure of the book of Psalms compares to the Christian's journey in this life. We begin in this life with the trials and troubles of this broken world, but we end in the new heavens and the new earth, with joyous worship to God and every tear wiped away. What do we learn from Psalm 3 about bringing our sorrows and troubles to God? You could summarize the four points I'm going to make as we look at the four stanzas of this psalm in the words, lament, turn, trust, and ask. Lament, turn, trust, and ask. First of all, we look at lament. David expresses his lament to the Lord. He casts his care upon the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It is our lot in this life to experience trouble. And the psalm teaches us to bring the heartache and ache and lament of our hearts in the face of the troubles of this world to bring these to God, which is not our natural response. Many of the Psalms speak of this. Psalm 34, verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Or Psalm 138, verse 7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. 
Or we think of Job chapter 5, verse 7, that very picturesque statement, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You can imagine sitting in front of the fire and see the sparks fly and think that's just an illustration of the troubles of life that fly into life. Think about David's trouble in this psalm. The title of this psalm is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The titles of the psalms are not part of the inerrant text, but they are very ancient, and it's likely that this is a true characterization of the setting of this psalm, when David fled from Absalom. 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16 describes this very dark period of David's life when his own son, one of his sons, Absalom, came toward Jerusalem, raising a rebellion against David, his father. He had secretly conducted this conspiracy and now was the unveiling point when it all went into action. And in the town of Hebron, a little south of Jerusalem, it was announced publicly that Absalom claimed to be king and the trumpets were blown and many of the populace went over to Absalom's side in this civil war. And we read in the book of 2 Samuel that Absalom had stolen the people's hearts, to use the verbiage there. Really, um, Absalom was a consummate politician who knew what to do in getting the populace on his side. And at this point, David and his associates have no option but to flee from Jerusalem. And so the description in 2 Samuel is very poignant, where David flees across the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem and over the Mount of Olives with this entourage of his military personnel who are supportive of him and some of his advisors and refugees that are going with him onto the road toward Jericho, this wilderness road, fleeing for their very lives. And in 2 Samuel 16, we see one of the things that happens on that road, very interesting picture were given that as he goes along that road outside of Jerusalem, he's met by this man, Shimei. And Shimei is a Benjamite. You might know that that's the clan of King Saul, who is, who is now dead. And he curses David as he stands by the side of the road. As David goes with his head covered in sorrow and barefoot, David grieving. And Shimei throws rocks at David and, and his warriors Of course, the warriors all say to David, let us go take off his head. And David restrains them. He says, no, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Don't do anything. And Shimei, if you read the account there, says that this is happening to David because he's responsible for King Saul's death. Well, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that David twice spared Saul when it seemed that God had delivered him into David's hand. He refused, even though his men said, take his life. David refused to do so. So that was not the case. But still it was difficult to have this enemy saying that God is against you, David. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Stating that God was judging David. He wasn't saying that God cannot help David. He was saying that God will not help him because he is judging him. A similar thing was said 
of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for our sins. His enemies in Matthew 27 call out, taunting him and cursing him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he delights in him, implying that God didn't delight in him and that God wasn't going to deliver him. In a sense, David is the precursor and the foreshadowing of the greater king and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We might say, as David lays his lament before the Lord, we might say, well, well, these are just words. But we all know that words are very powerful things. They go deeply into our hearts. They are one of the most deep ways you can attack someone. And we might say that in many ways, words are more powerful than weapons. They discourage, they confuse, they can lead us to despair in some ways. When we think of that, we're reminded that Satan is the believer's great enemy, and Scripture portrays really one of his primary means of attack as being the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of Christians. He holds before us our sin and says, how can you possibly lift your heart to God in prayer? How dare you? How can you ask God for help? You are not deserving. Look what you've done. Look at your sin. Look at your failings and weaknesses. You are not worthy. And in a sense, when Satan whispers those things in our ears and in our hearts, in one sense, we could say he is right when we think of what we deserve apart from Jesus our Lord and his righteousness. Apart from him, we would be in utter despair in the face of our sin and the accusation Satan would bring. But We have a Redeemer, and we have a covenant God who has loved us and set his mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, Satan's accusations are fundamentally groundless. They are false. They are lies. Satan may run along the side of our road, so to speak, and throw stones at us and curse us and declare that we are worthless, but as believers... We know that the Bible says our lives are hidden with Christ in God. What wonderful gospel truth we have to stand on. But it is not only Satan who brings us troubling words. Other people can do that as well. People may may say very hard things to us, especially in times of heated conflict. They might say things that might, might be true or it might be at least partly true, maybe things that are mostly false. And this can even be by the people who are closest to us in our lives. That's the way conflict tends to be in families and in marriages or with close friends or even with members of the church. A lot of the people who went over to Absalom's side were David's friends, some of his closest advisors. A whole host of his associates went over to Absalom, you know, weighing their political options. You try to back the winner, and it looks like Absalom was going to be the winner. It must have been a very disheartening thing for David to experience. The the point of what we're seeing in this first, in verses 1 and 2, is that we have a great need to biblically lament And that is not just keeping our troubles to ourselves and dwelling on them in an anxious and depressed way, but pouring out our lament to God. That's what the Psalms always do. Lament is oriented toward God. It's not simply in ourself. Whatever the source of our troubles, whatever the reasons they might be, 
or whatever the fallacies of someone like Shimei cursing David. We need to pour out our lament like David did. And for David, he knew that even though Saul's death couldn't be held to his account, he knew that God had told him that because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, the sword would not depart from his household. And just think, he's seeing it unfold before his very eyes and the fact that he was very responsible for this judgment being visited upon his household. Think of having to live with that. But my point is this, even knowing that, David does not hesitate to bring his lament, his burden to the Lord. There are some troubles that come into our lives that we have had nothing to do with. Just part of the brokenness of this life. You could drive out of here today and someone could run a red light and you could be in an accident. There are some troubles that we are partly responsible for due to our decision-making, our sin, our lack of wisdom, maybe mishandling a relationship. But the point here that we see from David, no matter whether we are partly responsible or not, The scriptures tell us that God is still sovereign over every detail of our lives, over every trouble that comes our way. And just like David, we have the great privilege of bringing our lament to our faithful Savior and Lord. David poured out his lament. But secondly, David turns to the Lord. There's this turning. David expresses his confidence in the Lord in verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David turns from thinking and focusing on his enemies or on his own sin and failure and focuses on his God. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce says this about this text. When a believer gazes too long at his enemies... The force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. Isn't that a great idea? I think it's exhibited in a place like Numbers chapter 13 where there's this report from the 12 spies that the Israelites have sent into the promised land to spy it out and see what it was like, see what the people were like, and they return, and 10 of them have a very negative report. They say, we saw the Nephilim there, that that people of great size and and power. Uh, They were the, the, the descendants of Anak, and we seem like grasshoppers, they say very despairing view of whether the Israelites would be able to conquer this land that the Lord was calling them into. And Caleb and Joshua, who give the minority report, these two men, their eyes are on the greatness of Yahweh, their God. And they say, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Look at what David says about the Lord in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. A shield stops arrows and sword blows of the enemy, my glory and the lifter of my head. My glory is that word in the Old Testament that connotes heaviness, weightiness, substance. God is a God of great substance in that sense. 
His glory shows that. David's kingdom is being taken away from him, and he is losing his glory. But this verse is telling us that God is really his glory. David all has all the glory he needs in the Lord himself. That is not an easy lesson for any of us to learn. And God is the one, we're told, who lifts up his head. Even when David is cast down and cast out, even when he's beset with this massive trouble that's come into his life, even then, God is still the lifter of his head, keeping him from utter despair. And David's confidence is recorded when he says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me, past tense. He knows it's so sure that God will answer according to his will that it's, it, he puts it in the past tense. He answered me from his holy hill. God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. For David, his confidence is rooted in his God. The great English pastor Charles Spurgeon said it this way, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. But don't we often have our eyes on the frowning world? David turned his lament to the Lord in this expectation of the Lord hearing. Our nation has experienced a difficult 12 months, hasn't it? And it's easy for all of us to focus too much on the news of the day and what seems to be a dark time. And dark times are very common in this world. God's people are always called in the midst of hard and dark times. After World War I, there was widespread casting away of belief in God in the West. The nations of the world had experienced the most disastrous war in the history of the world up to that point, with 16 million people killed in World War I, and killed for what many people after the fact thought seemed to be for no good reason, just nations warring. And the economies of the nations of Europe were in utter shambles. And in addition, at the end of the war in 1918 and 1919, the Spanish flu swept through the world, causing another 60 million deaths. Think think of how much that was concerned of the proportion of the population of the world at that time. It was a time of great despair about many things, with the rampant rise of communism in many nations and fascism throughout the world. And in 1920, two years after the end of the war, C.S. Lewis, who at that time was still an atheist, He considered himself an atheist. And having experienced as an infantryman in the front line of the war the horrors and the dehumanization of trench warfare, and then coming back to Oxford and seeing the impact on the nation, this is what he wrote. He said, I think we have now arrived at the point where a wise man can do more than wait for the end with what grace he can. Here was a disenchanted, despairing young man. And, of course, for Lewis, at this point, the end was probably just a vague nothingness. A wise man can just do do no more than wait for the end. Things were so dark. But in due time for Lewis, there would be a major turn, a turning to the Lord through the influence of the Bible 
and readings he was doing, and through the influence of a few Christian friends who were involved in his life, Lewis and his lament would turn to joy in the Lord as he comes to Christ. In fact, years later, he would title the story of his, his conversion, Surprised by Joy. In our lament, we must turn to the Lord. But then number three, David expresses his trust in the Lord in verses five and six. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Here we see faith in God. And traditionally, this psalm is termed a morning psalm because of verse five. I lay down and slept. I woke again. And possibly David penned this song after that first difficult dark night in which they had to flee across the Jordan in the evening or at night because word came that Absalom was going to be hard on their, their, their trail. And somehow David got some sleep on the other side of the Jordan that night and the Lord sustained him. Of course, this psalm isn't a guarantee that the Christian will never experience sleepless nights. Sadly, that's not the case. We will. But it is showing something of the fruit of confidence in God. And verse 6 further declares that that confidence of faith in God, even in the midst of overwhelming trouble. Can you imagine this description? And it was very realistic for David. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Absalom was raising the military force of all 12 tribes to pursue David. That would be an overwhelming thought. Reminds me of Martin Luther after the beginnings of the Reformation as he was preaching and writing about the gospel. And uh, he is called to a trial, to a hearing in the German city of Worms. And he is given safe passage And he knows that 100 years before, John Huss was given safe passage to a similar trial, and that ended up with John Huss being burned at the stake. But um, Luther decides to go, and all of his friends tell him, Martin, don't go. It's too dangerous. And Luther's reply reminds me of David's statement here in the psalm. Luther says, even if there should be as many devils in Worms as tiles upon the housetops, still I would enter it might sound like presumptuous. It it reminds me of the verse from A Mighty Fortress, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. By the way, there was prudence in Martin Luther's plan as well because he was declared a heretic and an outlaw, which meant that anyone could take his life on the government's behalf, but he had arrangements with Frederick III to whisk him off to the Wartburg where he stayed for months in an incognito way. So there's, a, there's certainly a line between faith and presumption, but are we trusting the Lord with the problems of our life? As we do so, as we trust in him, our God works in our lives, even in the midst of trouble, to bring forth a degree of peace in the midst of turmoil and anxiety and stress, and to increase our faith in the midst of fears that we face, which are very real, and to give us renewed hope that keeps us from complete despair. God doesn't take away the waves of the stormy sea, but it enables, He enables us to look by faith to Him in the midst 
of the turning waves. He sustains us as we trust in Him. But finally, David asks. David makes his request to God in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. The beginning of that verse may be taken from Numbers chapter 10 when um, the nation of Israel is in the wilderness and when they break camp and the cloud of God would arise from over the ark and go before the people to lead them in their wilderness journey. When that would take place, Moses would cry, Arise, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. No doubt David had that call in his mind. And David is very specifically asking God to deliver him from this trial as God's anointed king. David is the anointed king. Absalom is a usurper. If you're reading through the Psalms, Psalm 2 just describes that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. David is the anointed king. Absalom has joined the rebellious kings. And David, the anointed king, foreshadows the anointed king who is yet to come, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And God delivers David. Absalom is eventually defeated. His army is defeated. Absalom is killed. And David is restored to the throne. And then verse 8 gives a declaration of God's deliverance, God's salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing beyond your people. The great salvation of God is true for God's people whatever happens in this life. Whether or not we see the answer that we might long for in this life, we know that the ultimate salvation of God will come if we are in Christ And notice that in verse 8, David transitions from his own situation to apply this blessing and this deliverance to all of God's people. God's people in this life will certainly experience trouble. And again and again, they will enter into lament about the problems and trials of this life. But at the same time, God's blessing is upon them. As we've been studying in Ephesians 1, where we learn that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That is a foundational truth that's always real for every person in Christ. Your petition to God in your situation might be for healing of some physical problem, or it might be for provision for your family or guidance in some some major decision of your life. It may be for God to save your marriage or to bring reconciliation to a a deeply broken relationship that, that grieves you. And we know that God promises to hear and answer prayer according to his all wise purposes in his time, in his way, and we can't dictate to God. But do you see where this psalm has taken us? Whatever whatever the problem, whatever our lament, whatever the trouble, we can say with verse eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. And that means that from beginning to to end, God works in our lives by His grace 
to save us, to bring us to trust in Jesus, to keep us, to continue his good work he's begun in us, to ultimately glorify us when we see him face to face, and to finish that work he's begun in us. And so it reminds me of Romans chapter 8, that great chapter that asks, what can separate us from Christ's love? And the answer that Paul gives is nothing, nothing in heaven or on earth is able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to know the love of Christ by trusting in him, and you've never done that. You need to bow before God's anointed king, the one who came in humility but is going to come again in great power and glory. I urge you to believe the gospel and to give Jesus Christ your life. But for Christians, no matter how dire your world may look at this time, for God's people and for God's kingdom, we can live with steadfast hope knowing that there is coming a day when God will bring his kingdom on earth fully and finally. Until then, things are going to be up and down. Things are going to be dark more than they are bright. But one day, God will usher in the return of Jesus Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that then, lament will be no more. Amen. Father, we find ourselves very weak, easily distracted with the burdens of this life, caught up in both the cares and the pleasures of this world. Lord, give us new eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, to trust in him. Yes, to rejoice when you bless us, to be thankful more readily, but also to be ready to pour out our lament to you in our deepest sorrows and heartaches. Teach us these things deep in our hearts, O Lord, and help us to believe your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.